Hi, you are listening to a podcast of a sermon delivered at Manitou Presbyterian Church on April 3rd, 2022, on the fifth Sunday of Lent by Dr. Scott Starbuck. The scriptures are read by Steve Blewett. The homily, forget about it, is focused on the idea that God's will, though it is consistent and tenacious, seems all the newer to us as we repent in outrageous and overflowing love towards Jesus Christ. We hope that listening to this podcast will be a special blessing to you. Let us pray. Oh, gracious God, as we come to sit under your word on this fifth Sunday of Lent, on this communion Sunday, we are ever aware that we live in a world that makes us choose between treating people in the image of God or choosing instead something else, something abstract, power, security, wealth. Lord, we need you. So we pray that you would be in my speaking, in all of our hearing, that you would take the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, and even the reading of your holy scriptures, and transform these into your spiritual presence, that you would be our teacher, and that we would leave redirected and recommissioned as your disciples. It's on the strong name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Our Old Testament reading is from Isaiah, chapter 43, verses 16 to 21. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild animals will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, so that they might declare my praise. Our gospel reading today is from John chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, 
and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. May God bless this reading of his holy word. Do not remember the former things. In New Jersey speak, forget about it. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. It springs forth. Do you not perceive it? As you can imagine, any time, at least in my life, where the church wanted to embark on some great new initiative, this is the passage that people would go to. And yet, this passage was initially spoken to people who share so much with the refugees that we see from Ukraine. These are people who had been taken as captives to Babylon and were part of a slave force in Babylon. And then the Babylonians were overtaken by the Persians. And Cyrus the Persian said that the Jews who had been captured, as well as other people who had been captured, Syrians, Arameans, Edomites, and so on, could return to their homeland. <coughs> now think about this for a moment. What would returning to their homeland look like? Well, have you seen the pictures of Ukraine? What does it mean to return there? The truth is that most Jews decided not to return. Most Jews decided simply to become Persian. But some returned. And as they returned, they realized that they couldn't return and rebuild the way it was. I mean, there were practical reasons for that, although Cyrus the Persian was very generous and started a works project 
and was willing to pay for the temple in Jerusalem to be completely rebuilt. Sort of a Persian build-back-better plan. But these words of Isaiah about God doing something completely new fell on this returning community in a very different way. Because God also said he wasn't interested in being worshipped in a temple. They never wanted that in the first place. He told them, don't rebuild the temple. I'm doing something new. In some ways, I feel like there are parallels with where we find ourselves today in the world with this exilic community. Listen to what the prophet says. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And then things we can't even conceive. Wild animals will honor me, jackals and ostriches. And I'll give water in the wilderness. By the way, wilderness is defined where there isn't water. To give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself. Why? So that they may declare my praise. Carlos Cardoza Orlandi says, Speaking about this passage, God invites the community to see a new God's creation and redemption. However, this invitation is not about newness for the sake of keeping things going, keeping things rolling, some type of pastoral programming for entertainment and growth. Pastorally, it is an invitation to see a new what is in our communities that points to the reconciling, life-giving action of God. And that's exactly what the exiles who returned from Babylon were to look for. They weren't to seek a God who had to be lavished in a temple, who required sacrifice, supercharged barbecue. A God who had to be entertained through the singing of psalms. But instead, to recognize that God was calling each and every member of the community to not so much rebuild their old lives, but to embark on God's new life. New life of reconciliation. New life of love. This movement was so powerful, the temple that was paid for its reconstruction by uh, Cyrus the Persian and then subsequent kings, it took from 538, it was not completed until 515. Unheard of in the ancient world. But for a moment, there is a community who listened to these words. Something's happening in our society. Amy Cuddy and Nicholas Pierce wrote about what is generally known right now, we talk about this all the time, the Great Resignation. 
One path to recovering personal power coming out of all of the restrictions of the pandemic is to act decisively in ways that can change our lives. So, what can you do to act decisively to change your life? Well, if you wanted to buy a good bicycle, you're two years away from it arriving. That's not going to work. But hey, I can quit my job. That's something I can do. And all sorts of people have made that choice. The desire to assert self-determination is almost certainly a significant and underappreciated driver in the Great Resignation, the term for the phenomenon in which an unprecedented number of workers have left their position. So in the United States alone, and oh my goodness, just between August and October of this year, 12.9 million people quit their jobs. 12.9 million people quit their jobs. Right? You know what I'm talking about. More than 8% of the workforce. Holy moly! What's going on? And this affects things around us, like even church. Um, I... I hope there's not a great resignation with church, but I think that there is a great shuffling. And I've talked about this for some time. And I think it's all going to be okay. But somehow, the reaction after the pandemic has either led to more openness or a desire for more control. Either more openness or a desire for more control. Cuddy and Pierce go on in their article to say this, the problem is that the apparent solution to a sense of disempowerment, so the apparent solution, quitting, may at least for some of us not bring us any closer to resolving the real issues at hand, the ones that trouble us. I think about this at Gonzaga. So because I'm a pastor, like people talk to me, right? And so I hear about people quitting, and I'm going to put them into three general areas, students, faculty, and staff. And so when I listen, this is what I hear. Let's start with faculty. I'm quitting because the students are lousy and the administration is terrible. I listen to administration. I'm quitting because the faculty are idiots and the students require more all the time. I listen to the students. I'm quitting because I don't like the classes that the faculty teach and I'm not getting enough personal support for what I want to do from the administration. And I just, all the way around, you know, it's like I'm in the casino, which by the way, I've never been in. And you pull the lever, right? And like three things come up, is that right? Like three cherries, I think I saw it in a movie. I don't get cherries, I get three dysfunctional triangles happening right along a line. While walking away from a job may be absolutely the right answer for some of us, and by the way, if you're one of the people who did that, I'm sure that's right for you. Okay, I'm sure that's right for you. It's important for people who are considering quitting to recognize it might not actually work for what ails us most deeply. Knowing why you so badly want to leave your job 
may actually be a good thing to consider before you do it. Just saying. One person says what this amounts to is a societal midlife crisis. I don't know. But it does affect things. And it does contribute to things like inflation. Richard Rohr, long before any of this happened, pointed, um, and, and this isn't his invention at all, but that there is an inherent and desirous dissatisfaction that both sends us, so that's the quitting, and draws us, and I think that's the Christ, and it comes from our original and radical union with God. He said to live inside the divine is to live in deep time where before and after become one. So in this time of disorientation, we can be sure that just like heating up something on a Bunsen burner, there's going to be agitation. And people are going to try to solve that agitation in any number of ways. But it's also in times like this when God, I don't know if it's right to say God is especially active, but we have the opportunity perhaps because our lives are disrupted to connect in cleaner, more direct ways. And so I'm listening to those words from Isaiah, don't remember the past, as a way to focus on the present. Although God's will is consistently tenacious, right? God is always doing stuff. The more we repent, the more we turn to God, our involvement is fresher and our participation more direct. And I think this brings us well to the story of the anointing of Jesus. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany to the, hope of to the home of Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Remember, when Lazarus came out of the tomb, he, had, he was odiferous. He stunk. He smelled like death. I imagine he smelled a lot like places smell in Ukraine. There at Bethany, they gave a dinner for him. Jesus, Martha served. Lazarus was one at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume. You know how costly now. Made of pure nard and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. One of the best commentators on this passage is Marianne Mai Thompson, who, Anne, I think was part of a congregation you and Craig served down in California. She draws our attention to Petronius, a first century CE writer, who recounts an unheard of piece of luxury when during a banquet, slaves brought in ointment and silver basins and rubbed it on the feet of those who were reclining at a table. Plutarch recounts 
the magnificent banquet at which the feet of guests were bathed in spiced wine. In the same way, John portrays Mary as bathing or washing Jesus in this very costly perfume. This should really aggravate those who either intellectually or theologically or are of Scottish descent. Right? The idea of any type of not only waste, but extravagance is just, it can't possibly be of God. But maybe we need to rethink this. Marianne says the narrative stresses not only the perfume's cost and abundance, but also, and this is key, the luxuriousness of Mary's act. The children got that, didn't they, with the pictures. They saw how deeply Mary loved Jesus. The perfume's fragrance filled the whole house in contrast to the stench of decay about which Martha warned Jesus at Lazarus' tomb. So in an oblique way, Marianne says, the perfume's fragrance, fragrance suggests that Jesus would not experience corruption, perhaps, but would be raised to life and glory with his Father, perhaps. It's easier for me, instead of thinking that Mary was some type of theological savant, for me just to think that Mary deeply loved Jesus. What would you do with your retirement savings if you had the chance to help someone you deeply loved? Mary deeply loved Jesus. Now, it's important in John's gospel, but also important for us to understand what's going to happen next week is this anointing in no way, in no way, shape, or form is a royal anointing. Mary was not saying she's doing this because Jesus is the royal Messiah. John makes that clear because the word that he uses for anointing is not the technical word for that type of anointing. The word that's used indicates that this is being done out of empathy. Right? We talked about this last week. Not resentment, Judas, empathy, nurture and love. Let's go to resentment. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, one who was about to betray him, raises the question. This is the question that the Scots could really pay attention to, right? Even though John is saying, look, Judas is not sincere. Judas doesn't really care about the poor. Judas cares about manipulating the situation for his own gain. It's what I think happens on cable TV news all the time. But it hooks into us, doesn't it? A hundred thousand dollars. That Scottish sensibility in us 
isn't this an absolute irresponsible waste? Jesus says, let her alone. Or in New Jersey speak, forget about it. Let her keep it for the day of preparation for my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. There's something very, very important for us to see here, I believe. Especially for a congregation that mobilizes itself frequently and consistently among helping the poor. There's something very, very important for us to see. You know, some people comment on this passage because they serve congregations where there always seems to be a fight over money in such a way that someone will say, well, that costs a lot, and what they really mean is, I don't want to do it anyway, right? You sort of see that happening in Congress all the time. Anti-disciples always have a seemingly reasonable explanation for reserving extravagant love and withholding generosity. And they always have considerable concern for the issues expressed by Judas. There's something for us to pay attention to here. Is there, is there something about Mary's extravagant love for Jesus in the face of death that we can learn from? Especially now. Lamar Williamson says, what discipleship is really about, what the evangelist wishes the readers to hear in Jesus' words, is the beauty of uncalculating love. The beauty of uncalculating love. And its importance on the mark of true discipleship. We are facing immense problems with no clear solution that are going to continue for a long time. It's possible for us who care so much about the poor for those who are refugees, for those who want to make a difference, who want to put their faith into action in a month, in a year, in five years, to start our own great resignation and to ask, what's the point? Are we making any difference? And this passage tells us anything that we do towards Christ or for the sake of Christ that is marked by extravagant love is world-changing. Anything we do 
that is marked by extravagant love, whether it seems to make a difference or not, whether it's practical or impractical, is world-changing. And that that is the mark of a true disciple. The mark of a true disciple is not how effective am I, how effective are we, how successful are we, is the world getting better or worse. The mark of a true disciple is because of Christ's extravagant love towards us. We choose to live forward that extravagant love to him, to one another, and to this world in the face of death and disaster and things we cannot change. And I know that not so much because of a commentator, but because Jesus outdid Mary. Right? Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it. And he said, Take, eat, because this is my body. What would the price be attached to that? And he said, don't forget this. Forget about that. Don't forget about this. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, Jesus took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood for the remission of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. Earlier in John's gospel, Jesus says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no share in me. It's not about mechanics. It's about extravagant love. That is what is going to see us through. That is what is going to see this congregation through in this chapter of the Great Resignation. That is what is going to see the Christian church through in this world that is war-torn. And that is what ultimately will see every single person through. As one day, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow and declare Jesus Christ is Lord. Not out of fear, not out of compulsion, but out of extravagant love. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Ministry of Manitou Presbyterian Church in Spokane, Washington. Additional podcasts, worship videos, and other content can be easily found at manito.org. That is M-A-N-I-T-O dot O-R-G. May God bless you in your authenticity and yearning today.